Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. In the January-February issue, music and film critic Gary Giddens examines the lush and rousing score composed by Franz Waxman for 1962's otherwise forgettable Taris Balba. Yet, as we all know, the phenomenon of good soundtrack, bad movie isn't limited to early 60s Cossack epics. In this episode, I was joined by Nick Pinkerton, film comment contributor, critic at large, uh, Margaret Barton Fumo, longtime contributor to film comment, and Tom Sharpling, radio host and not film commenter of any <laughs> anything. To discuss films that can't sustain your attention, but serve as guideposts to great music. And starting this Thursday, we'll be bringing you daily updates from Sundance on this podcast and on our website. So please stay tuned. Film Comment is your destination for essential Sundance coverage. Well, thank you all for coming. And today we're going to be discussing a phenomenon that happens uh, from time to time where there is a bad movie, and bad is sort of a negotiable concept here, a bad movie with a great soundtrack. So I've asked everyone to bring two movies today where maybe you just have it on in the background and you're not really watching the picture. So, uh, Nick, how about you kick us off? What is your first choice? Well, I'll start with what I think is kind of an outlier in this group because I think we're mostly concentrating on scores per se. And I grabbed onto this more as a instance of a particular phenomenon, particularly in American movies in the early to middle 1990s, which is the official soundtrack album, which mm -hmm. became pretty ubiquitous and necessary for studio releases to have a tie-in soundtrack album with you know pop rock songs on it. I, I, I date this kind of to The Bodyguard being as enormous as it was, that you would have a whole ancillary revenue stream from a movie connected to the official soundtrack album, which may or may not even really heavily feature the songs on said album may not heavily feature in the movie itself. And there are a couple different possibilities that I toyed with judgment night soundtrack being one of them where I know hardly anyone who has any memory of that movie whatsoever, <laughs> but everybody knows you know, the title track and perhaps the like helmet house of pain collaboration <laughs> yes uh and what i finally landed on as being maybe the most like viable candidate as an actually cohesive basically good album i think you said good soundtracks yes. bad movies <laughs> is uh, the crow soundtrack yes. uh connected to the brandon lee vehicle of the same name released 1994 which uh, i saw as a stripling of 13 years old uh, at the oakley drive-in in cincinnati ohio in i believe a double feature with mike nichols's wolf i'll have to <laughs> double check the dates on this and I hadn't watched the movie in a long time. It is one of those instances of a movie, though I hadn't revisited it. I loved it as a kid, but it got very moldy in my mind. Hmm. So I went back to it, and it is indeed 
not my cup of tea these days. I mean, there are points of pleasure in it. You got like David Patrick Kelly, 15 years after the warrior, still like running around <laughs> heading street gangs, apparently still hasn't like hung up his hat, mm-hmm. but the soundtrack front to back is highly listenable. I will say it's definitely making, it's definitely warranting inclusion for purposes of what it may be meant or did for me as a younger guy because mm-hmm. it was sort of one-stop shopping get you up on a certain kind of aesthetic uh the mm-hmm. the track list i can run through uh headed off by uh, the cure's burn which is perhaps the second greatest cure soundtrack cue of the 90s mm-hmm. the greatest of course being 1995's dread song from the uh, Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd. And was that written for the film? Uh, You know, I I was not able to determine the lyrics refer to Uh, face uh, paint uh, and crows, uh, but... That might just be like a default setting for a lot of Cure songs. It might have been a happy accident, yeah. (laughs) Then, of course, the big big smash is Stone Temple Pilots' uh, Big Empty. And most of these songs aren't really front forward at any point in the in the movie like very often they're utilized just sort of playing in the background and like a bar or something yeah. like this yes, yes. the two big exceptions to this are uh, my life with the thrill kill cult where the band is seen performing in one of these industrial spaces yeah. with dangling chains and <laughs> <laughs> like a, a a welder doing his business in the background <laughs> somewhere <laughs> that were sort of uh, omnipresent in films of the period and then um medicine's time baby two i think is what's actually performed in the movie and then it's time baby three which is a slightly gussied up version featuring cocteau twins participation Which is a legitimately kind of great song, mm-hmm. I think. And I have a lot of time for the first two Medicine records. And I mean, I, I, I can only say even the sort of outliers on this soundtrack, and there are a few violent films don't seem like that they would slip in right alongside uh, you know, some of the other acts. They, they, they kind of click somehow. You also have, in terms of bigger names, certainly at the time, Nine Inch Nails performing uh, Joy Division's Dead Souls, which is one of a handful of uh, covers in here. Uh, you also have Pantera doing uh, The Badge, which is a Poison Idea song. And uh, Rollins Band, of course, contributing Suicide's Ghost Rider in a really heavy, dirgy kind of version. Again, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not uh, trying to say that this is uh, uh, a, a masterpiece to end all masterpieces, but it does have a certain consistency. The one 
track that makes no sense whatsoever to me is the inclusion of Rage Against the Machine's Darkness, which when you have Zach De La Roca spitting about genocide on uh, on the soundtrack of a movie that's uh, about Eric Draven, ex-member <laughs> of Hangman's Joke, <laughs> uh, going to avenge the death of his fiance. Uh, I, I don't know that it's exactly apropos. It's just music to make your parents mad. Mm. That's like a genre that no longer exists. Like a lot, you know, like Corn, not a great band, but they definitely made a lot of people's parents mad. Uh, Marilyn Manson, another just sort of like just there to well, piss here, off people's parents I mean, and be here, satanic. Here is where I think the age difference between us, which is not great, <laughs> shows because I'm exactly of an age where I can go, oh yeah, Crow soundtrack is pretty. <laughs> Pretty decent stuff on there. <laughs> but I'm also of exactly an age like, oh my God, corn, are you kidding me? <laughs> Get out of here with that. But I will, I will say the other thing that is kind of nice or functional about the Crow soundtrack is I think it operated for a lot of people as a sort of gateway drug mm-hmm. where you could pour over the liner notes, which is a thing that people did in bygone days and say, oh, it's just, you know, a suicide cover. What's suicide? Exactly. Let's look into let's look into this. Mm-hmm. Um and then it sounds better. You're like, oh wait, <laughs> suicide are good. Not like this Rollins band <laughs> version of suicide. Um it's also exciting that you have the line between Bruce Lee and Pig Champion from Poison Idea. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a couple degrees of separation now, finally. <laughs> it's the shortest that it has ever been to connect Bruce Lee to the 600-pound guitarist from Poison Idea. And again, I, I, I bring it in as just sort of representational of a period where radio pop songs would be drizzled over absolutely everything Mm -hmm. kind of indiscriminately because it was so expected that you would have an official soundtrack album so i mean i just remember like the most like comedies that had no place whatsoever shoehorning like big pop songs into them would do it routinely so Mm -hmm. you watch like dumb and dumber and that like was it dead eye dick new age girl Mm. <laughs> it comes up huge in the mix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're watching Dirty Work with Norm MacDonald <laughs> and like Third Eye Blind, Semi Charmed Life. Yeah. It's this very like front forward place in things. So, for that reason and for the fact that it is a basically coherent record, I give you the Crow soundtrack. <laughs> You also started getting all those terrible music videos that chopped up, like yes. scenes from the film. Well, uh, the crow has one with helmets, milk toast, which is just like close-ups of Paige Hamilton and then Brandon Lee moonily like noodling on a guitar on top of a ruined church. And then we get the movie star to show up for one second yes. in the video, like Arnold Schwarzenegger mm-hmm. in the Guns N' Roses. Was that mm-hmm. you could be mine? Oh, or um, Mike Myers as uh, Austin Powers in the Beautiful Stranger video. Well, I mean, I think Michelle Pfeiffer in Dangerous Minds, uh, the Coolio video, is probably oh, yeah. the most committed yeah. Yeah. film star <laughs> yeah. has ever been. She wanted people to take her seriously. Yeah. She's like, look. Um, she maneuvered that chair in all sorts of different directions. <laughs> <laughs> but Margaret, what's your... What's your first choice? Um, okay, I guess I could start off with Don't Answer the Phone, which probably none of you have seen. 
<laughs> but anyway, I'll explain it to you. Um, it's from 1980, and it's like a borderline exploitation horror film about a crazed murderer who rapes and strangles women across Los Angeles. Um, it was directed by Robert Hammer, I think. It was his only film that he directed, and it stars Nicholas Wirth, who is a B-level kind of heavy actor. is really fantastic, and his performance in it is just so completely disturbing. He acts in a way that you're unsure as to whether he's improvising or not. You know, he's his his range extends from the sort of maniacal kind of twisted whisperings up to full throttle, you know, histrionics, crying and blubbering and going nuts. And um, his overacting kind of makes the 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 attack scenes seem more realistic in a way because his madness is so believable. He's just so clearly unhinged that he makes all of his scenes really disturbing. So in that respect, he kind of anchors the film with a standout performance. But other than that, the film just belongs in the trash heap. <laughs> um, <laughs> the two main, uh, the two detectives who are on the case, one of which is supposedly the star of the film, are just a bunch of floundering, kind of bumbling idiots. And uh, the representation of women is just horrendous Mm. it's just cheap and nasty and not a very good film at all whereas the soundtrack by byron an uncredited byron alred is killer Mm. (laughs) byron alred was the keyboard player for steve miller band uh, maybe is the keyboard player for the Steve Miller band. I don't Those know. Those country fairs need their <laughs> state fair needs their acts. Free um, after a Mets game. Yes, which is actually where I saw the Steve Miller band well, there last you go. year. There you go. Um, so the soundtrack is very synth heavy, and it's just got all these fat, catchy leads and really funky bass bassline grooves. It just wails and sears across the soundtrack. It kind of overpowers the soundtrack at times and kind of swells into this dominant kind of jam. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Look, Mom, we'll talk about it tomorrow, okay? Okay. And then other times it accentuates what's going on, whereas, in, for instance, in the kind of stalking around L.A. scenes, you have a more of a walking kind of funky groove going on. And then during the attack scenes, it just sort of makes them creepier because of the, unnat- the very, very unnatural sound of the synthesizer, as in a lot of, like, slasher movies that would use synthesizers at the time. There's a clip of it on YouTube I could play for you guys, maybe, but... Um, that gives a kind of sense of what it sounds like, but it's taken directly from the DVD. Mm-hmm. And aside from that one clip on YouTube, you, there's no way of hearing the soundtrack unless you actually watch the film. Oh, man. Um, which is one of the reasons why I've always wanted to get the rights to kind of release it <laughs> myself, because it's just like an ugly, nasty 
film. And although every time I watch it, once it's over, I kind of want to watch it again just to hear the soundtrack again. So that is Don't Answer the Phone. It's, it's got to be a really bad movie where the overwhelming desire is to like rescue and liberate the soundtrack <laughs> yes. from the context yes. that it was intended to operate. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, Tom, what is your first choice? I was going to do a movie close to the time your movie was, Margaret. It was a Death Wish 2 mm. soundtrack, mm. which is Jimmy Page, and it's the first thing he did after Led Zeppelin broke up. And then I listened to it again. It's just like, yeah, this is not very good either. <laughs> like, it's kind of sleazy sounding, and it's not as good as I thought it was. And I didn't think it was that good, maybe, to begin with. But the movie's so bad. But then I went with something that I had seen so many times is 1941, the Steven Spielberg movie, where it's kind of him after Close Encounters and he's kind of drunk with power and <laughs> thinks he can do no wrong. And then he just makes this movie that's just like everything is bad in it and nothing works. And it's it's supposed to be a comedy and it's it's like the least funny comedy you could ever imagine. It's just loud and... Everybody screams all the time in it. Like that's just like what he thinks funny stuff is, is to just have stuff get smashed and then have people, then it's, you know, John Candy screams and then Ned Beatty screams for a while and John Belushi screams and it's just everybody screams. And then there's some models and Eddie Deason screams a little bit in it. Everybody's favorite nerd. Um, who has a ventriloquist dummy of himself in the movie, which is probably the funniest thing in the whole movie is that Eddie Deason, his character, had his own ventriloquist dummy of himself. So it's a that project I, that probably costs, yeah, that's several hundred dollars worth of yeah. handicrafts. But yeah, <laughs> for the most expensive comedy ever made. So yes. it's a really bad movie, and it's so fascinating because it just never, ever works and you could see this guy who's got like a million tricks and just can o always knew which tricks he could play to entertain an audience and suddenly it's just like they're all just laying there but then this soundtrack the score for it is this john williams score which is this rousing catchy it has that classic military get everybody all fired up sound and it runs through the movie and it's got there's the whole score is great scenes with the Japanese sub he doesn't go too heavy on the Asian sounds mm. that you thought he might <laughs> like there's a slight hint of it but he backs even he knew to back off then and didn't it's like this rousing thing and you watch the movie and it never like the movie doesn't match the score mm -hmm. and you never feel like the 
like it never just the movie just lays there it's the most fascinating kind of bad thing watching somebody super skilled boy genius just eat it hard <laughs> and yeah and i guess he never did another comedy that he would call a comedy again where it wasn't supposed to be anything and it's just i don't know that but, but i always love that music and it's just like when you watch it it's just perverse to watch it kind of with the film like if you listen to it on its own it sounds like a good old-timey movie score and then you watch it with the movie it just this loud big thing gets it's almost gets swallowed up by just the loudness of everybody yelling in this movie oh my god my wife was i was watching it and she came in and watched a little bit of it and then she was just like she was like how much more <laughs> this movie is there and she came in with like a half hour to go and then i was like i think there's like nine minutes left and she's just like i can't do this she's like this is giving me a headache and even like the closing credits where they show like each person like they have a little clip it's just everybody screaming on it again as if nobody got the point that they're just screaming here he's like let's watch everybody scream one last time as they walk out of the theater yeah. It's funny that you mention the fact that the movie overwhelms the score because usually the reverse criticism is applied to John Williams' score with like, sure. oh, he's spelling out every little thing. And it's like that he has this gigantic orchestra and that the obnoxiousness of the movie just sort of drowns it out is fascinating. Oh, yeah, the movie's just like, it's like watching like a kid like in a tub just like going, bah, like smashing <laughs> boats and things like just splashing and there's like the two hour cut of the movie was the one that was in theaters and then there's like the two and a half hour cut which i know i've seen and they're just all it's not, it doesn't get better it's just of more not. of it it's like <laughs> who thought you'd want more of it it didn't clarify anything i i would i would just venture to say and i I'm a 1941 apologist, which is, I realize, a grotesque and untenable position to take. <laughs> um, but there is the, like, USO dance hall brawl sequence, yeah. Oh, yeah. which is, I think, the moment in the entire Spielberg filmography, along with some of the numbers in A Color Purple and uh, the beginning of Temple of Doom with the Cantonese anything go, like, the moment where his repressed desire to make a big splashy musical is given its most effective airing mm -hmm. sure i mean they, there's there's stuff that works in it and there's fun stuff in it but then when everything is just like you can't separate the good crashing punching things from the bad ones because <laughs> all anybody does is punch and kick and knock things over and break stuff <laughs> but there are the like the dance stuff you can see, like, because he went back to, like, in the second Indiana Jones movie, it seems like he tried to get it right, like he wanted to do that again. And there's stuff, there's a couple Rube Goldberg things that are fun in it. But then it's just, like, it's just sensory overload. And, and yet, I can't help but notice you've watched it multiple times, <laughs> including <laughs> multiple different well, versions. I keep waiting for it to be good, I guess. And it's just, like... I'm waiting for somebody to tell me it's never going to just suddenly make sense because it doesn't make sense. It's just a bad, it's a huge misfire. But I like the models. I like watching 
a Ferris wheel roll off the Santa Monica Pier. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to see that? And that's the plane. Oh, the stuff looks great in it, but then it's just it just doesn't add up. And it's also like he's trying to be with the cool kids. Like it's like Steven Spielberg trying to hang with like the Animal House crowd for the first time, and it's like the nerd trying to fit in with those guys. It's the first time he just it's like beat it nerd <laughs> you can't you can't hang with us we're doing coke over here yeah. and he's just like i'll try some coke <laughs> i think he even said that was like the only period in his life where he was like indulging in the hollywood lifestyle so then he made a movie just about driving tanks and blowing up hollywood <laughs> like it's just a movie where he's like what if i just smash up hollywood well i had uh, a similar grappling with my first choice which is Todd Haynes Velvet Goldmine and it sort of fits into Nick the the tendency that you were talking about in the 90s to have like a really great soundtrack tie-in some of that's because of like synergy in the 80s where you know Sony Pictures and they have Sony Records and so they can get their artists to put something together to accompany this but Velvet Goldmine is you know it was sort of notorious because it was Todd Haynes big studio attempt and it was a pretty big failure sort of like taking the citizen kane approach to david bowie's life right but then there is also elements like space oscar wilde with a gay power emerald that is passed down through generations <laughs> um uh and then oscar wilde as a child uh stands up and says i want to be a pop idol and it's like what what is happening here just feeling that it was very miscast with like Christian Bale playing a 27 year old he because he looks like he's 35 and then also having Christian Bale play that same character as a teenager and he just looks so much older and meaner than everyone else in the movie Jonathan Reese Myers uh, is like the Bowie character Brian Slade he's bad he's not a very good actor Ewan McGregor is supposed to be like um an Iggy Pop sort of a guy with maybe a little uh, Lou Reed sprinkled in. He's just not that. And it's just, it's just like, it's, it's, it's such a weird mess, but then, because it's not quite experimental enough, but then it's, and it's asking you to take certain things very literally. And then at other points, it's like too experimental and too crazy and too much like a Ken Russell movie, but parts of it work. There are parts of it that are definitely enjoyable and like very sweet. You know, like when Christian Bale's journalist character visits Brian Slade's first manager in the hospital, it, they never say that he has AIDS, but it's clearly inferred from the context. And it's like very moving, but the soundtrack itself, though, is like pure awesome because it has Ron Asherton, Thurston Moore, Mike Watt from Minutemen, Mark Arn from Mudhoney, Tom York is like doing covers of... Roxy music songs and, you know, actually singing and not making like sad squeaking noises like he does now. You got me good on the run around, run around, got me all around town. You got me good on the run around, and it's getting me down, getting me down. And then there are like some good glam deep cuts that, you know, even if you're a big glam rock fan, you've probably never heard of Steve Harvey and Cockney Rebel. And then great T-Rex, Diamond Meadows, which has like this weird cello, like a, like a chamber music sort of a vibe. 
the music that they created for the film, it is very carefully made and it has this interesting layering of backup vocals because obviously David Bowie was huge. Roxy Music did that too with sort of like tape stuff and, and experimenting with these sounds and they, they capture that. So it had the best intentions and it just could not be more wrong. <laughs> it just could not be more wrong. So it's like, I have a very conflicted uh, relationship with that movie for sure. <laughs> I've never seen the movie mm -hmm. and yet I quite regularly bump a soundtrack cut, The Ballad of Maxwell Demon. Yes, <laughs> it's really good. Because <laughs> when, when did that come out? 98 or so? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I used to like, because I remember before the movie came out, my friend Renee bought the soundtrack and we would like ride around Cedar Rapids, Iowa, listening to the soundtrack and like Brian Eno, uh, Needles in the Camel's Eye or whatever. Uh, and we were so excited for it. And then we finally saw it and we're like, this is good. I don't know what's happening. But yeah, the soundtrack was like hugely formative for me. But I mean, not unlike, I think, the Crow soundtrack, you have these things that sort of do double duty as like a sampler platter, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. in the pre-downloading era. Yeah. If you wanted to get a sort of thin sliced version of what this kind of music is like for the like glam period. Yeah you could probably do worse than Velvet Goldmine. Exactly. It's so interesting how they're like fake glam rock songs, you know, mm -hmm. and they're written by people who were all like influenced by that time rather exactly. than like getting people from that time, mm -hmm. which I'm sure they could have done yeah. too, but it succeeds. Like mm -hmm. it really does. The songs are really good and they really sound like, it's like, sounds like babies on fire, but <laughs> isn't quite, you know, it's, they're really great songs. Yeah, yeah. Who, who, do you know, did Don Fleming do that soundtrack? Do you know? I think he might have produced it. Yeah. Because, I mean, he's the guy who, he was in a bunch of bands, the Gumball and Ball, and but he's now in charge of, like, the Lou Reed archives. Mm. That's what Don does now. So he was kind of on the, the history side of things, the historical side of it, but also just clearly the bands he was in had a big affection for all that stuff yeah i guess he also produced that second teenage fan club album uh. that you know bandwagon-esque that's a favorite of a lot of people <laughs> teenage fan club who performed with de la soul on the judgment night soundtrack yes there we go. <laughs> oh my yeah everything's connected judgment night's not a bad movie <laughs> some <laughs> dudes in an rv it's been a minute. Getting chased by Dennis Leary <laughs> through Chicago. You're not you're not selling it too much. <laughs> I think I think I've had enough of Dennis Leary uh, trying to browbeat me into buying a Ford F one fifty every Sunday for the last sixteen weeks. Look, he has he has three skills, yeah. <laughs> and he's just gonna keep using them. But... These guys are talking about talk. <laughs> Stop it. I'll buy an extended cab F-250. Just leave me be. Well, Nick, what is your second choice? Oh, my second choice, actually, from 
not more than a year after my first choice, because I, I never leave the years of my adolescence, apparently, <laughs> uh, is John Carpenter's Village of the Damned. Mm. Uh, and it was a pretty easy pick because I bow to nobody in my Carpenter standing. But this movie is a misfire from almost every angle. Um, I will say there was a moment on rewatching after I'd nominated it where I thought, oh, drat, this movie might be quite a bit better than my memory of it is because the setup's really quite effective. It uh, takes place and it's not identified per se to my knowledge, but what is a like coastal northern California town? I think the actual area where it is shot is the same area where Carpenter had shot The Fog some years earlier. Mm. Very, very atmospheric. And the setup is this, uh, based on uh, a Wyndham Lewis story, which had been made into a movie in 1960. Uh, the name of the story is uh, The Midditch Cuckoo, I suppose. It's a small town that one day is overtaken by this mysterious fainting spell that affects everybody within the limits of the town. And they wake up out of this spell, and shortly after, every woman in town finds that she is with child. Our identification character here, I should mention, is uh, Christopher Reeve, who is like the town doctor, who winds up kind of teeming with uh, a Kirstie Alley character who is this government specialist who's come in to study this strange phenomenon. Well, the children are born and they're all sort of albino-ish pallid creatures who occasionally have this unnatural shine that comes into their eyes which allows them not only to read the minds of the adults around them but to win displeased dispatch with the adults mm. and again the setup is very very fine very slow insinuating and no small part of this is the soundtrack by carpenter as per usual and on this collaborator dave davies formerly of the kinks and it's some of i think the like lushest, most romantic soundtrack work that uh, Carpenter has done. Some people I've seen suggest that there's a sort of creeping new agey element to it, which is not entirely unfitting for the like Marin County setting, mm -hmm. but the velocity drops off very badly about midway through. It has a lot of the same problems that other Carpenter movies have. I'll use Prince of Darkness as an example. Mm. It's, you know, chock-a-block with characters who are very sketchily developed and just fed into a meat grinder one after another. There's a lot of unwieldy exposition. But in Prince of Darkness, because of the, like, compressed setting and the compressed time period when it takes place, it, it, like none of that shit really matters particularly. It keeps it it keeps burrowing ahead uh, well, also like, it's furiously. Yeah. It's like actually scary as hell. Sure, like the video yeah. stuff. I wouldn't be like, terrified <laughs> to have Alice Cooper roll up on him <laughs> <laughs> with that spike on a bicycle wheel. But anyway, yeah. continue. Sorry. <laughs> and I mean and I should mention this movie came out uh, just a couple of months after uh, In the Mouth of Madness, mm. which I rate really, really highly. 
Um, and from what I can gather was kind of a for hire job. Wes Craven, I think, had set the property aside and uh, Carpenter slid right into the director's chair. Uh, and you can see certain things that he's trying to do, like with Kirstie Alley as this sort of, you know, tough cigarillo smoking, uh, like Hoxian heroine, mm -hmm. but it just does not track at all. Um, there are a few, there are certainly moments, including a big, uh, big gunfight where an, an entire police uh, department turn guns on one another, which actually drowns out the theme, which is given its best, like, airing out in the film in this scene. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just, I really, really enjoy the soundtrack. Uh, it has, you know, all of the, t you you have your Carpenter menace well represented. It's like uh, the brick wall, I think, is the tune that I, I really like, which comes toward the end where Christopher Reeve is confronted by this classroom of children trying to read his mind as he is attempting to immolate them and himself, <laughs> thus saving the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's this great just like pummeling, like running the gauntlet of percussion with these sort of like gym gymnasium echo. Uh, it's really very, very tough. But you also have these strange little bits of kind of gently fretted noodling from uh, from uh, Dave Davies and there's a sort of softer side evident here that I'm not over anxious to revisit, but the soundtrack I find, uh, I assembled a uh, like Blu-ray DVD rack yesterday while listening to it, and it mm. did the job just <laughs> fine. Yeah. Margaret, you wrote about uh, Carpenter's soundtracks and sort of how they mm -hmm. evolved over the years. Yeah, I didn't write too much about that one, though, but it was uh, Mouth of Madness has, I believe it's Dave Davies mm -hmm. just shredding <laughs> sh shredding like crazy and village of the damned is much more subtle yeah i mean the theme has a really nice kind of martial stomp to it mm -hmm. and this is a sort of recurring image in the movie is this entire brood of children just cruising through the town <laughs> in total like lockstep um <laughs> And th there are effective things, but as a as an overall experience, there's, there's a lot of terrible miscalculations. Again, like you can see elements of other Carpenter movies in it, mm -hmm. but his is such a strong style that it's either like a total it's either a total home run or a total whiff. He's like it's it's like one of those Adam Dunn styles uh, to to reference a Cincinnati Reds outfielder of the mid aughts, um, and in this in this one he's hacking away, but just nothing is connecting. Margaret, mm -hmm. what's your second choice? Uh, my second choice is Graffiti Bridge, mm. which is the ostensible sequel to Purple Rain, released in 1990. 
uh, is written and directed by Prince himself and filmed at Paisley Park Studios. It sees Prince uh, reprising his role from Purple Rain as the kid, and while Morris Day and the Time also reprise their roles as themselves and as uh, Prince's adversaries in the film. In Graffiti Bridge, Morris Day and Prince, or the kid, whatever, <laughs> co-own a club called Glam Slam. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, Morris Day wants to have full ownership of that club and all the other clubs in the neighborhood. And he tries to bully Prince into giving it up, and the tensions between them rise up to the point where Prince challenges Morris Day to a musical battle, which uh, Prince, of course, wins, although he does it with this really tepid ballad. So it ends the film on a really half-assed note. But uh, Prince was really riding high when, at the time of the making of the film on the uh, success of the Batman soundtrack, of which I am a fan, a big fan. But um, it may have gone to his head a bit, clouded his judgment a little bit, because Graffiti Bridge uh, stinks. <laughs> would, you, would you say it's his 1941? <laughs> it, might be, it might be his 1941. It, keep watching. <laughs> at some yeah. point, maybe it will be great. It's going to click at some point. It's poorly written, poorly directed, it's misogynist, and it's just corny as hell. Um, there's so many bad jokes in it that are just in poor taste and are just duds. For instance, um, when Morris Day and his male friend accidentally get close to each other in the dark, when, of course, they think that the other is a woman, um, <laughs> the lights come up, and when they realize what happened, Morris Day starts gagging and then has to run off and vomit. <laughs> or when... Prince's ex is angry with him and for no apparent reason other than to just, I don't know why, she just takes her underwear off <laughs> and throws it at him. She's like, oh my God, it's the kid. <laughs> he did the Batman soundtrack. I mean, he owns this club. But she's angry at him. <laughs> yes. So she's like, here, see, take my underwear off and throw it at you. <sighs> When the film was released, it was nominated for a bunch of Razzies, mm. and uh, it was just a huge flop at the box office, unlike the soundtrack album, which was a huge critical and commercial success. Although, in my opinion, it's kind of a mixed bag, but that's just my opinion, you know? But it's a 17-track double album, wow. so... <laughs> He wrote, Prince wrote all the songs, including the songs that are performed by guests, special guests like uh, George Clinton, Mavis Staples, Mars Day in the Time, Tevin Campbell. <laughs> but the songs that are performed by Prince are really the best. Everybody wants to find graffiti Makes you laugh when you want to cry. Everybody wants to find the perfect one. Everybody's looking for. Everybody's looking for. Everybody's looking for. 
I'm I'm just more of an earlier Prince fan from the Wendy and Lisa era. But I consulted with my friend Bill, who's a Prince expert, and as he pointed out to me, um, a lot of the songs on the Graffiti Bridge album were written, and some of them even recorded years earlier. So that adds to the kind of mixed bag quality of the compilation. But as far as it integrates into the film, the musical performances are really great, as always. They The music kind of lifts the film out of the muck a little bit, mm-hmm. but... The performance is still hardly enough to offset the general awfulness of the film. Instead, you get this kind of back and forth sensation between the sort of pop, like bombast of the performances and the the dung <laughs> that comprises the uh, dramatic sequences. Hmm. So that is Graffiti Bridge. This will be such a treat for listeners because they can listen to this and go, oh, what should I check out? On the recommendation of this podcast, absolutely nothing. <laughs> They'll be listening to music. Yeah. What They'll can be I listening listen to eight eight movies that I've been told are terrible. Ah. <laughs> I, I I realize that I have a recommendation to make really quickly, which is that if anyone who has not seen the John Carpenter and the Coupe de Ville's video <laughs> for Big Trouble yes. in Little China, yes. which which features the yes. director of Christine uh, <laughs> playing a Paul McCartney-like Hofner bass <laughs> while standing in front of a reel-to-reel like Steenbeck editing table <laughs> and singing the title of Big Trouble in Little China over and over again in this sort of like Jim Morrison Big Trouble <laughs> in Little China. Yeah. <laughs> I saw him. If you take nothing else away, yeah. you know, take three and a half minutes out of your day. Well, I saw him in concert. John, me too. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah, he's he's. It's like he is a master of horror and stage shows mm-hmm. because he does like this weird pre-scripted banter with the audience where he's like, "I'm sorry, but I love to make." horror movies and then everyone's like woo and he like pauses he knows exactly when to pause to just like like let the audience go crazy um because the audience goes there expecting him to apologize (laughs) (laughs) when is john carberry gonna just do a mea culpa yeah when is he you know when he's gonna stop doing these damn horror movies and these damn soundtracks but no he has like this whole setup behind him where there's like he or someone else, probably someone else, re-edited the movie. And so it's like, you know, like the car, kill a car from Christine mashing up while he plays the car. You and know, this, and the Dave Christine Davies thing. tours with him, right? Uh, the Dave w- Davies' son. Oh, yes. young, yeah, young Dave, Dave Davies. Dave Davies' son and John Carpenter and Adrian Barbeau's son, who's yes. really doing the brunt of all the keyboard Exactly, work. yes. Yeah, because John Carpenter is a showman, and he's doing his little grooves, little dances, yeah, he but play- he's playing with, like, two fingers. Exactly, it's like, like a <laughs> Duran Duran sort of style yeah. of a yeah. keyboard, keyboardery, but yeah. anyway. But it's a family affair, for sure. It is. And it's then like- it's... And then it's the band members from Tenacious D round out the band. Yes. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, I see that March of the Children has become a live favorite. Yes. It's good. Slaps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tom, what is your second choice? 1998's Deep Rising, starring Treat Williams, which both <laughs> of my movies had Treat Williams in them, <laughs> which I thought was part of what we were trying to do here. Was... <laughs> a movie with a 
great soundtrack, bad movie that has Treat Williams in it. <laughs> and I'm the only one that followed the rules <laughs> on that. It's Treat Williams and Bomka Johnson. And it's directed by Stephen Summers. Stefan. I don't know if he goes Stephen or Stefan. Right before he did The Mummy. And um, it's Jerry Goldsmith did the score to it. And it's this really great opening thing that's kind of queasy and menacing and it sounds like you're underwater and it's percussive and it's scary and then it's just like literally the worst movie imaginable because it's like this movie where treat williams is like just a dude who has a boat that like will deliver anything he doesn't care like he doesn't <laughs> ask questions and so there's these guys have missiles on like on the on his boat and it's in the south china seas and I guess they're gonna do something where they're gonna they're gonna mess. I couldn't even. It's one of those movies that's so simple that you can't follow the plot of it, <laughs> where you're just like, I'm not exactly sure what this is about because it's so stupidly basic. I almost it's like a Bazooka Joe comic where you're like two panels and you're like, did I miss? something here or is that everything and you're like oh i guess that was everything so they're gonna like they're gonna hijack or or sink this giant this giant luxury liner that had just launched with this super rich guy on board and and then um yeah and then the boat starts getting attacked by like sea monsters and they just kind of like come up through under the giant cruise ship and start like it's like these squid this enormous squid monster that you can't even tell like exactly what the squid is like it's so poorly executed like it's just like tentacles are going down the hallway and you can't you can't ever get a sense of the monster in the movie which is always a great sign of a monster movie i don't know exactly what the monster looked like but um yeah, so then they end up going to the boat, and it's Treat Williams running around shooting at this, this giant octopus. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of the whole plot of the movie. <laughs> but it's so bad. The movie's so bad. And then I just – the thing I'm fascinated by is just picturing, like, this guy like Jerry Goldsmith who did, like, Planet of the Apes and all these soundtracks. And then it just, like, he sees this, and he's just like, okay, what? <laughs> what? sure okay giant squid like when he finally he, he like he gets presented i'm assuming it went something like this where they probably showed up with a cashier's check i guess <laughs> that he could take right to the bank <laughs> just, but he's just like actually turning in something really good on something that's so bad it's just so fascinating to just that somebody who was on a different plane than the other thing
And it's not even the kind of movie where it's like, and they try to have moments in where it's like wink, like it's like, oh, maybe this is supposed to be just. It's like no, it's really, it's just bad, but it's also kind of untethered to where the tone shifts to where it seems playful Mm -hmm. to where like, Oh, they're in on it. And it's like, well, I don't know if they're in on it as much as it's just such a, it's, I mean, it's really the worst movie. Imagine it's just like pure torture to watch (laughs) this monster movie that, cause also you couldn't get any perception of where things were happening. It's like all tight hallways on a cruise (laughs) ship. So there's like no sense of like the danger. Like we have to get off of this thing, and it's like, where's off? If it's... isn't that just the water where the monster yeah. is? <laughs> exactly. It's just yes. That would. That's a very good question. That maybe Stephen Summers should have thought about when he wrote and directed it. It's his. It's like I guess this is his masterpiece. Like his his vision, but the score is really. It's it's really good and and kind of. It's, it feels like you're underwater. It's real percussive and kind of unsettling. And then just, again, it's just such a bad movie. Oh, my God. I can't even say how bad this movie is. <laughs> because Fomka Jansen is in it. Is there sort of like a love theme? Or are there? does he sort of use the same sort of like melody throughout it? Or I guess what, what else besides the sort of like underwater once feeling? The, once the squid thing shows up. And pulls a woman through the toilet. Oh no! <laughs> and I'm not even sure where it like grabbed her. Like that's what oh. I was not sure. And there's like for the first hour, you don't see any. You just see water moving because the ship starts flooding. So you just see water moving, and then the, somebody's face looking horrified, and then just blood splash on a wall. Like they also just don't show you anything oh, yeah. for a long time. No, there's no there's no love theme okay. in it. <laughs> <laughs> she um she's a she's a a, a crook in oh, it who okay. gets locked in the whatever it is. she gets locked in like a storage thing because they catch her trying to steal stuff and then treat runs into her at a point and the two of them escape mm-hmm. i'm sorry to spoil the movie <laughs> for you i didn't even mention the part the, the real spoiler would be if i said that they end up on an island and they're like oh we're safe and then suddenly you see there's like monsters on the island. Yeah. It's the final shot where it's like, oh, well, they definitely have their work cut out for them now. <laughs> they have like a a jet ski like with them is the only weapon they have at this point. So they're going to have to use that jet ski to fight an island of monsters in Deep Rising 2, I guess. <laughs> I was thinking this is approximately contemporary to both like Deep Blue Sea and Speed 2 Cruise Control. Yeah. Oh, I kept forgetting the name of it until like, because it's so forget like Deep Rising, like <laughs> it's just like it wants to like leave your head. It's like, it's not, it, it's so, it's so passive, <laughs> Deep Rising. Originally it was called Tentacles. It's like, yeah, I would go see Tentacles. <laughs> well, Tentacles. Yeah, Tentacles a, happened already. Yes. This is another film that I'm a big fan of. Watch Tentacles. Got some good cuts on the soundtrack there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Stelvio Cipriani. Really good soundtrack. Well, the film I'm going to talk about is uh, Forbidden Planet. And this is a, it's like a science fiction film from the 50s that stars Leslie Nielsen. And it's sort of like, obviously, this was made back when, you know, the 
like the, the very beginnings of space travel and, you know, the idea that there's intelligent life out there and that we can learn so much and just the idea that the future is not going to be horrible, unlike now. <laughs> it's like, oh, maybe can we hit pause on stuff? But uh, it's, it is this, the set design is sort of interesting uh, for now. Looking at it now, it's sort of like, oh, that looks kind of cool. But honestly, most films had sort of a look like this back then and uh what's really remarkable about it is the soundtrack by Luis and Bebe Baron who are this husband and wife team experimental uh musicians who lived in the West Village and this was before synthesizers were made so they made their own circuits they programmed their own circuits their own oscillators and then they would record the noises onto tape machines and then manipulate the tapes and if you listen to the soundtrack, it's kind of incredible to think of this because it's not like people were hobbyists at this time with this sort of equipment. It, you either you were affiliated with an institution like a, a university or Bell Labs, or you just didn't know that this stuff existed. And they had collaborated with John Cage on Williams Mix, and um, they do all of the sounds. So when I say soundtrack, it's like literally every sound in the movie they created for this movie and how they got this gig because you know they're like funky downtown artists they heard they were like okay this is getting us zero dollars let's make some money and so they heard that dory shari was going to be at this upper east side art gallery opening like opening of a show very you know button up crowd and so they went in and lewis was like okay so we got to find the guy who no one is talking to because he's the most important person. Like everyone's too intimidated to talk to him. And they saw a man there, well-dressed, no one was talking to, went up, bam, it was in fact Dory Shari. And they got the gig, 25 grand for the score and the sound effects. But what's so sad is that they were prevented from getting credit for the score. And they also got like, they were taken off like the Oscar nomination for the film um, and they were never really allowed to work in Hollywood again because it was sort of like a one and done contract, which sounds weird, but uh, they were sort of these upstarts and not considered musicians because, again, they were they were manipulating these tapes. They weren't playing an instrument, so to speak, even though they were clearly doing really interesting stuff. And the soundtrack is just so fully realized and to imagine you know somebody going through the trouble of like manipulating this you know these tapes for hours and hours and hours to make this because the the sound is the soundtrack is pretty consistent throughout everything and it has theremin style sound which is you know very common for horror sci-fi movies of the 50s because that was like the sound of the future
but it's a truly incredible thing and like I, I know people or at least I remember growing up people were like oh my god it's so cool uh, Forbidden Planet Robbie the Robot not actually cool not actually cool <laughs> it's, it's just like kind of boring uh and then there's maybe some like freudian stuff thrown in there i don't care all i care about is this um soundtrack which it, it, went, it, it went on to influence glam so that's how my two are connected well i recall uh carpenter had like a carte blanche sidebar at mm. bam when he was doing live shows when was that a couple years back when yeah. the lost themes album came out mm-hmm. and that was one of the movies that he picked I've got a question for Margaret is like what kind of presence did synth have in movies of the 1960s because I know of course like Forbidden Planet and then it seems like there's kind of a dead zone between that and I don't know like Sisters or something like that mm-hmm. like is a, a long elapse between full like synth scores right. Um, I think that they were present. I can't come up with many titles right now, but it was it was still a thing. It was more of a soundtrack kind of synth sound, more so than like musical. The musical synth kind of kicked in more in the seventies. Yeah, because again, it was just like the technology really wasn't mm-hmm. there, and um, you know, if you think of like, well, the Moog goes on market in like late 60s 68 right, something right. like this yeah. yeah so it's like the and and a lot there was actually a lot of programming involved with it you couldn't like plug it in and then not follow the instructions unlike a guitar and also just like it was super expensive it's like the antithesis of economic accessibility of a guitar or a bass or whatever i guess I'm invocation of my demon brother with mm. uh Mick Jagger, Mick Jagger, Mick Jagger. <laughs> an <laughs> obscure <laughs> character from rock lore. <laughs> That's an early, early example of a very, very early Moog. And then I, I'd forgotten about Wendy Carlos. Yes, of course. Switched on Bach. Yeah. Yes, I saw when I was I got kind of interested in this same exact thing when I was looking up this film and online. There's a movie list of uh, synthesizers in films. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very, very thorough. And it has a bunch of films from the 60s mm-hmm. on it. Before we end, it would be great if each of us went around and talk about a film briefly that we saw recently that we liked. I saw Scarlet Empress because I just had a yearning for Marlena Dietrich. And it's a great, great little collabo with her her good old pal. Her, <laughs> her boo, good old her boo. Her boo. Uh, <laughs> Joseph von Sternberg, um, and it's about, it's like a, a very uh, loose uh, adaptation of the life of Catherine the Great, but it still gets lots of totally inappropriate sexual innu- innuendo in there where it's like, oh yeah, she had sex with the whole army, that's why they supported her. But putting that aside, it's great. She's great in it. She's always great. Um, the costumes are just spectacular, and I love it. So go out, go out, watch that. That's fine. Well, I mean, I guess I got to go with uh, in theaters today, mm. the commuter. Oh, that's right. <laughs> God, we cannot let Liam Neeson retire from action <laughs> films. I want to see. I want to see him in a walker, <laughs> continuing to take on difficult situations on different modes of transit in a limited uh, race against the clock time span. I. I I will say it has easily the greatest opening credit sequence of 2018. I know that's going out on a, a limb, one that gets at something 
deeply, deeply sad about mm-hmm. clock-punching existence, has more than a passel of really, really strong set pieces. And like with each Colette Sarah collaboration, Liam Neeson just gets more and more sort of bent under the weight of the world and more and more just infected by a profound melancholy. He's like practically a right angle at this point, this this uh, sorrowful uh, your presence. And I, I really, really, really love it. Go out. I'm really looking forward to seeing <laughs> Well, a little while back I saw Gothic at uh, Metrograph and that the Ken Russell film. And that kind of inspired me to rewatch one of my favorite 80s Ken Russell films, which is Lair of the White Worm. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that one. <laughs> Hugh Grant is in it, and the it's about a uh, archaeologist who unearths this skull. Then soon afterwards, strange things start happening. People start disappearing. This amazing, weird woman shows up. And they found find out that there is an ancient cult, a worm-worshipping wor- cult. There's a giant worm at the end, which, spoiler, is actually a Volkswagen bug. <laughs> <laughs> Painted to look like the mouth of a worm. And, I don't know, it's kind of psychedelic f- for the uh, late 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a lot of fun. I have this gigantic book about Ken Russell, and it's this amazing compilation of interviews with people who acted in his films, you know, like DPs, below the line, all sorts of below the line people, casting directors, just Mm. tons and tons of people. And of course, like big people like Glenda Jackson, huge collaborators. But I love the chapter on Lair the White Worm because Hugh Grant talks about how Ken Russell would have rather a French lunch meaning he would just get shit faced (laughs) and then he would come back to the set and try to direct it. It was very funny. French so, lunch. I never yes. heard of that. Tom, what's your pick? Oh, um, well, last week I got snowed in a casino in Atlantic City. So highly, I, re- But you highly recommend that experience. I do recommend it, yes. It's <laughs> kind of nice and isolating. And I played this Anchorman slot machine for probably about 10 hours <laughs> over the course of three days. And so then I went back to my room and watched Anchorman 2, the alternate cut of it, which is a completely recut version of the movie with all different jokes from the first movie and it's just as it shows how much how much just alting was going on during the making of it because like when they made the second one i know adam mckay the director had a like literally an amplifier and a microphone and he would just say alt lines Mm -hmm. to the actors and this movie is like that version of the movie it's the same story but none of the jokes are the same, pretty much. It's kind of interesting to see that they had that much extra stuff that they could recut an entire second movie out of it. So, yeah, I like that. Well, thank you all for coming. This was excellent. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rippold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. 
visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, and Kindle at filmcomet.com slash app.